This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hello, dear friends. Welcome to the broadcast. Say so long to summer. Just about. Excuse me. You don't mind if I share an almond with you, do you? Hmm. Thank you, David Gaskin, for this uh, lovely Italian organic almond. I um, I spied a bag of almonds sitting in the other room, and uh, it happens to be my favorite snack. And I, uh, it's not something normally I do. Rather presumptuous of me, but I said, David, may I have some of your almonds? And uh, He's leaving in a couple of weeks. What does he care? Anyway, <laughs> he offered me up a handful and a delish. All right. Um, yes, the summer. So long, as I said. We're heading up to Wasega Beach with the twins one last time tomorrow. And as George Ginescu, the good doctor who precedes me, um, the host of Big Band Sunday Night here at AM 740 in Toronto, I said, it's going to be a parking lot up there. And no doubt, however, we will... We will brave the traffic going northbound on the 400. If we get an early start, though, I think we can beat the rush. Ha! <laughs> Who am I kidding? It is going to be a parking lot. But one last hurrah for the little guys. They've had a great summer. Last night we camped out, or we attempted to camp out. Um, I put the uh, the tent up in the backyard. And if you know anything about me, uh, you know, you've already heard me describe my adventures with the wading pool earlier this summer. This uh, tent uh, was... Um, uh, given to me by my brother, bequeathed to me by my brother, who's a, a bit of a, a more adept at camping than I am. Anyway, it, I fumbled around with the poles, and and uh, about two hours later, I had this thing up finally. And uh, then I got a nice tarpaulin and put that on the uh, tarp on the on the on the ground, so that it, the, you know, in the mor- in the morning, the dew wouldn't come up and soak the ground, right? So then I put the tarp down, then I put some. Uh, some bedding, some uh, some uh, sleeping bags, and then our blankets over top of that. And then I, I took out an extension cord and I plugged my little uh, my Mac laptop in, and we watched. I had popcorn. We watched a Harry Potter movie uh, with the two little guys. They were having a great time. I had the flashlights and the bug spray, and I was I think I was more excited than they were. So the movie ends, and uh, then of course the boys have to go to the washroom. Each of them three times. <laughs> so zip, unzip, zip, unzip with the uh, the tent flap. 
and I didn't send them back in, into the house, just out, out by the, uh, the pear tree, and away they, they went. And uh, finally, after all that, I said, okay, now, finally, we're ready to get to sleep. And it's 10 o'clock, and uh, North says, Daddy, I think I'd really like to be in my own bed. So that was the end of it. We gathered up our pillows, and back into the house we marched. I wasn't about to leave, you know, Zachary alone in the tent. So that was my, uh, my Saturday night. Anyway, I hope uh, you're having an enjoyable summer, what's left of it. And, you know, this past summer, I've been out on the road uh, filming uh, interviews uh, for the TV show. And I hope to have news for you soon about when you can see that, season three. Any, in any event, I have had the privilege of meeting some of the most amazing people. And uh, was in L.A. for a week. Uh, and, but earlier on this year, I was mainly sort of in southwestern Ontario. And the gentleman you're about to meet was one of the people that I, I, I met and uh, spent several hours with him up at Redeemer College, which is in Ancaster near Hamilton, Ontario. And this gentleman owns an exact replica of the Shroud of Turin. Longtime listeners to this program uh, will be aware that the Shroud happens to be one of my favorite topics. I, I have read more, probably read more books about the Shroud, interviewed more people about the Shroud uh, than just about anything else. And uh, it's just, to me, it's intriguing. If you don't know much about the Shroud, you're going to learn a lot about it tonight. And it's interesting. This is going to be a a different perspective because my guest tonight is a man of science. He's a biology professor, as I say, at Redeemer University College in Ancaster, and a world-leading authority on science and faith and where they intersect. And as it relates to the Shroud of Turin, he's also the author of A Christian's Guide to Defeating Evolution, a Biological Approach, and Rescuing Science from Preconceived Beliefs, Religious Beliefs at the Interface of Science and Faith. We're not here to debate uh, religion tonight. We're not here to debate evolution. We're here to examine the scientific evidence for and against what may be the most studied relic or artifact in human history, the Shroud of Turin. I hope you'll uh, stay with us for the hour. And uh, let's say hello to Gary Chang. Hello, Gary. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, ah, the, the, the miracle of Skype. And you can, <laughs> and you can hear me as well. Yes, you, I can. You're sitting in your office at uh, Redeemer University College, are you? Yes, I'm sitting in my office. All right. And is the Shroud of Turin nearby? The, your exact uh, replica? <laughs> it's close. Uh, first of all, let's uh, assume that there may be uh, a number of people out there who don't know what this extraordinary piece of linen cloth is, what it looks like, and what it's all about. Just uh, uh, tell us what it what it's supposed what it might be. Well, the shroud of Turin is uh, actually an ancient linen cloth. It's about fourteen feet long and only about three and a half feet wide. So it's about the size of a cloth that would cover a long, narrow table. This cloth is important to many people because of its claim to have covered the body of Christ as he lay dead in the tomb. This cloth is currently housed in a light-tight glass-enclosed case in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in the city of Turin, Italy. This city is known as Turin in the English-speaking world, but the Italians know it as Torino. The written history of the show goes back to medieval Europe, and during most of its time, 
It was kept folded in a box or casket and was only brought out for public view every 10 to 50 years. Its last showing was actually in April and May of 2010. And at that time, over 2 million people paraded through the cathedral to have a three-minute glance at this ancient cloth. Now, the, the image on the shroud is very faint. In fact, I yes. understand you have to stand mm -hmm. back quite a ways in order to appreciate what's, what the image actually re looks like. Tell us, about the, right. tell us about the image on the shroud. Well, the image, as you've mentioned, and you saw it in the replica I have, if you stand too close to it, you can't make it out. It's a very, very faint image with uh, very little contrast. You have to stand back about uh, three feet to five feet to actually start to see what the image might look like. And what you see is a, both the front and the back of a man. The front uh, face and the back of the head appear right in near the middle of the fabric, and then the bodies extend out. And so if this, in fact, was created by uh, the body of Christ as he lay in the tomb, then this cloth would have been laid out on the tomb, maybe on the slab or on the floor somehow. The body was then placed on one half of it, and then the other half of the cloth was gently placed over top of the body. And so the image on the shroud actually looks like a man, both the front and the back, laid out longitudinally along that cloth. And it, it, there also, uh, on the image, there are, uh, there is evidence uh, that this was the victim of a Roman crucifixion, correct? Exactly. Uh, everything about this image uh, is, uh, well, first of all, how the image got on the cloth, no one knows. They've uh, tried many different techniques to, tr to create a very similar type of image and some people have gotten close but no one has actually been able to reproduce this image so if it were a fake and created in medieval europe uh, it was done by a technology that nobody even today can reproduce but the but that's the question about how the image got on but what is more important is what the image tells us the image, as far as modern science can, can go with this image, this image is what the crucified person would have looked like if he were scourged, crucified, ex in the, exactly the same way Christ was crucified. Well, let's, let's so, talk a little bit about uh, uh, some of the evidence uh, that le lends or suggests that the mm -hmm. image uh, died as a result of a Roman crucifixion. First of all, we have yep. the scourge marks on the back. Yes. Now, tell me about about those scourge marks. What what do they? Why do we conclude that they must have been um, must be there as a result of a Roman crucifixion? Oh, because of the imprint that was left on the back. It was uh, an imprint that is exactly the same as a Roman flagon, which is a whip that has at the end of it. Uh, dumbbell-shaped um, metal pieces, or could may not have been metal, but hard pieces, that when a person is flogged or scourged with this, uh, it actually digs out some of the flesh every time it hits you. 
And the mark that it has left on the back is exactly the same as the dumbbell shape of a Roman flagon. And, and how many floggings did this individual receive? Are we able to determine that? Uh, it, he probably received just one flogging, uh, with several whips, of course. Uh, but they do know it was done by two people because of the way the imprint of the marks are on the back. And how many and lashes? Also, you have to keep in mind that when, it, when these people whipped the person, uh, you have marks on the back, but also you have marks on the front because the whips would have gone right around the body. Interesting, in some cases. interesting. How many lashes? Oh, uh, that I don't know. Dozens, <laughs> hundreds? It, it, uh, now they've, um, uh, you can, right off the top of my head, I don't know exactly the number, but you can, by forensic evidence, actually say how many there are. Right. So if this was a forgery, someone would have yeah. had to have um, a pretty good working knowledge of the Roman implements mm -hmm. uh, and also how, how they would have uh, yeah. impacted on the body. Well, what's interesting about this is the question of it being a forgery. Uh, anyone who has actually looked at the shroud, no one who has actually looked at the shroud has said it's a forgery. The only people who have said it's a forgery are those people who have actually refused to look at the shroud. All right, Gary Chang is with us. Science meets religion here on The Conspiracy Show. The Shroud of Turin will open up the phone lines, make them available to you a little bit later. Is this extraordinary piece of linen cloth a remarkable forgery, a medieval hoax, or is it, could it be, might it be, the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ containing evidence of a resurrection event? You tell me. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Gary Chang is with us. We're talking about the Shroud of Turin. And before we get to back to that, let me just mention, uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett, twitter.com slash Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. And I just wanted to acknowledge a tweet that I received uh, from Western Canada, Raylene, um, oh, back on August 29th, actually, uh, said, uh, Western Canada, I love, um, she, she, she tweets from Western Canada, and she says, um, where are we here? 
basically she's saying, I hear you talk about how the show is heard from um, Thunder Bay to the Carolinas and from Maine to Minnesota, but you never talk about the West Coast. Don't we rate some sort of recognition? And um, I, I tweeted back saying, well, when I say that, it's, it's basically I'm describing the incredible footprint of Zoomer Radio. It's one of the largest in North America. And the signal from AM740, the flagship station here for my program, uh, carries all the way from Thunder Bay, Ontario, into Quebec, and all the way south to the Carolinas and from Maine to Minnesota. Uh, I, I, love you, uh, I love you out on the West Coast, and I know that you li- listen to the, uh, the program on, on podcasts and uh, uh, live uh, webcasts, and you, you watch the TV show. Uh, but the terrestrial radio signal, unfortunately, doesn't carry that far. Um, but hey, if there are stations out in BC who'd love to carry, uh, you know, carry the show, I'd love to hear from you because, um, um, of course, of course, my West Coast listeners are important to me. So, if if you feel like I've neglected you, um, mia culpa. I love you. Big hug to Lotus Land. Actually, she, uh, Raylene didn't stipulate where in the West Coast, uh, but um, uh, anyway, Raylene, I hope you're listening. And uh, thank you for listening. All right, back to the Shroud. Gary Chang is with us, biology professor at Redeemer University College in Ancaster, Ontario, world-leading authority on science and faith as it relates to the Shroud of Turin, owns an exact replica. And and Gary, it's interesting, the last two people uh, that I've talked to about the Shroud have been very credible people uh, from the world of science. There's, you know, you are a biology professor, uh-huh. You you yeah. uh, you have published in peer reviewed journals. Yes, you're yes. you're a biology professor. I I I recently spoke to uh, a medical doctor with a background in physiology who also believes that the shroud is authentic. Um, uh-huh. And as you say, even the even skeptics uh, won't come out and say that it's a it's a forgery. They're not quite. I mean, I spoke to a skeptic. Um, yeah. someone from the Center for Inquiry, and even he admitted, he said, this is a head-scratcher, it's interesting, but he didn't believe, he didn't believe it's authentic, but he couldn't, of course, because he's a materialist. That would lead right. him down the road to believe that if it is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ and it, and it contains evidence of a resurrection, therefore he yeah. was who he said he was, and, mm-hmm. you know, on, on and on we go. Anyway, let's get back to the, the actual uh, image on the shroud. Okay. And there's something else interesting. There's a there's a um, appears to be a large abdominal abdominal wound uh, yeah. under the rib cage. Well, um, sort it's it's uh, in the rib cage, okay. but it flows down. Yeah. And what can you tell us about that? Well, that wound actually uh, appears to be to have been made by a spear that was plunged into the rib cage. And uh, the wound actually has a, coming from it uh, blood stains, and uh, on the shroud itself there is some blood, and they've now shown that it's real blood, and that the way the blood came out, it came out uh, the way the blood would from a body that was crucified the way Christ was, and that in all likelihood it came out both uh, like water and blood, because it would then the the uh, serum would have been separated slightly from the red blood cells. Is that what they and call so, vascular bleeding? Yes, yes. And that would indicate that the, that, that the, that the person was dead when the, when the spear yes. was, okay. Yes, yes. Uh, another uh, interesting fact about the blood is that it has a rather, uh, on the shroud itself, the color 
is not quite what one would expect if you simply had some blood coagulating on a cloth. No, it's not crimson. It's not. Uh, right. It's not. It's, well, it, it's it's thought that it should have turned a lot blacker, and on the um, cloth, it's it's sort of more reddish brown than black. So, in a sense, it's retained its reddish color where uh, it should not have done that. But uh, they have more recently discovered that blood that has come from a body that was severely beaten, that blood has in it a lot more waste products from red blood cells, the bilirubin and the biliverdin. And that inside the blood actually maintains the blood's color when the, bo- when the, blood, uh, when the blood leaves the body. And so they actually use that as forensic evidence that somebody had been badly beaten. Fascinating. Fascinating. That would have never been known by any forgery. Uh, I mean, that's only something that's been known in the last 20 years. Interesting. Now, the other, let me ask, let me go back to the uh, the spear wound. Why is that significant? Uh, Was that something particular to Roman crucifixions that they would do that? Um, no, I don't believe it was. I believe that um, in this particular case, uh, what is uh, particular to, or what is was customary with Roman crucifixions, is that the person, when they died of be, by being crucified, they essentially died from suffocating. They could not breathe, and that's how they died. And so when, uh, well, now you have to recall the account of Christ, there was two others being uh, crucified with him. And they had to get rid of the bodies off the cross because the next day was going to be holy. So these, these people had to die. They weren't allowed to hang around for the next two or three days like often happens with crucifixions. And so they went out and broke the legs of the two individuals being crucified with Christ so that they would suffocate. But when they went to break the legs of Christ, he was already dead. And that sort of surprised them. Why would he have died so soon? And so what they did to prove that he was dead was to actually put a spear into his side. And out came the water and blood, which clearly shows that uh, he had given up the light, uh, his ghost. And the the, 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 the legs on the image were not broken. The legs are not broken. So again, consistent with the biblical account of Christ's crucifixion. Yes, yes. We should is. also point out, obviously, in a crucifixion, the, the, uh, the feet and the hands are pierced with a nail that are driven into the cross. Tell me about the wounds on... They're, they're not on the palms of the hands, they're in the wrists. There are in the wrists, and, and that has always been a problem since the shroud was first first known in, in modern times. Uh, artists uh, have always depicted the uh, nails going right through the palms. But if you actually nail a body to the cross through the palms, uh, there's no support there. It's simply flesh. And the body would just slide right off the cross. Uh, you actually have to put the, uh, the nail through the wrists. And this was discovered years ago by a fellow named Barbet, a French uh, surgeon and also anatomist who uh, studied the image of the shroud back in 1933. He got pictures of the uh, image at that time. 
And that always puzzled him as well. Why would the nails not be through the palms, but through the wrists? And he was actually doing autopsies, and he decided to actually put a nail <laughs> through some of these uh, bodies that he was able, that he had access to. And he was the one who showed that if you put it through the palm, there wasn't enough uh, support there to hold the body to the cross. But you can actually slide the, um, there's a name for the actual uh, channel in the wrist, and, oh, and it's not the carpal tunnel, but there's, a, there's a, a channel there that you can actually put a uh, nail through, and that would hold the body. And another thing he noticed is that when he put the nail through, and now he would have dealt with people who had recently died, and so there, there were, some parts of the body would still be living. When he put the nail through the wrist, he immediately saw that the thumb went and went underneath, the, went towards the palm. Because you'd, you you agitate that median nerve. That's right. You agitate that nerve. And he people didn't know this until he did this. And when he looked at these pictures, if you look at the picture of the wrists and the hands, the thumb is not visible. It's tucked in underneath the hand. Because the nerve had because been agitated. Because the nerve was agitated. Now, some people say it can't be Christ because it's supposed to be through, put through the palm. But you have to keep in mind that this was not written in English. This was written in Greek or Hebrew. And at that time, a hand was anything at the end of the arm. So the wrist certainly fits in the proper anatomical place. So again, here we have uh, the, the wounds, the injuries sustained by this image on the shroud, mm-hmm. lining up with the biblical account of the crucifixion. And also lining up, which with which what we know now to be forensic science. Now, I've I've been told by some skeptics that they're convinced that the image was painted on. Is there not some evidence of, of, of remnants of paint on the linen cloth? Well, first of all, uh, for those skeptics, and there are a lot of them, these are the skeptics who refuse to look at the image itself. Uh, one of the famous skeptics is Walter McCrone, who got a piece of fabric back in 1978, a very, very tiny piece, and he said there was paint on it. And from that, he insisted that the entire image was a painting. He could not be more wrong. But there are a lot of people who still faithfully believe that Walter McCrone was right. Walter McCrone never looked at the shroud himself. He never looked at the image. If there's paint on the shroud, and there should be paint on the shroud, because people used to paint copies of the shroud, and before the painting dried, they used to apply it against the, sh- the real shroud. So there's going to be paint on the cloth, but there's no paint associated with the image on the cloth. People have known this for centuries. This is not a painting. There's no paint mark, there's no paint associated with the image whatsoever. The, um, the photograph that was taken at the turn of the, of the 19th yeah. century by uh, photographer Seconda Pia That's right. revealed yeah. something about the shroud for the first time. Tell me about that. Well, um, he was the, um, well, he took the first picture back in 1898. The shroud was being brought out for an uh, exhibit uh, or to, was to be exhibited during a festive event. And so he wanted to take a picture of it. 
Uh, he didn't know what to expect when he took a picture of it, but he was a fairly um, um, experienced photographer. And he did all his own uh, plates, all his own film, all his own developing. Because at that time, essentially, the there were only, only people who could do photography were the people who were amateurs. Um, and what he did, it took him a, a couple of tries, but he managed to get a picture of the shroud. And then he took the picture, which was on his negative in his camera, and he took it to his dark room. And he knew that if with, from his experience, he knew that when he developed that film, he would see on the film what's called a negative, where the white is reversed with the black. Because that, And then you take a picture of the negative to get back to the positive. From his experience, he knew that what he saw on his negative would be less comprehensible than the real thing. It's not, it's not the, what's called the positive. But what he observed developed in his negative was a picture which was actually a positive. He now saw what the man of the shroud really looked like. And he knew at that moment that there was no way this could have been created by anything, any human being. It was created by a type of photographic technique that was unknown until the mid-1800s. So if he ends up with a positive image on his negative film plate, and, that yeah. means that the image on the shroud would have to be a negative image. Would have to be a negative. That's right. And so something put scorch, like, like the uh, light will scorch a, uh, the film, Something about the body scorched a negative image on the cloth. But wait, there's more, much more. It gets better, folks. Stay with us as we discuss the Shroud of Turin. Gary Chang, biology professor, stays with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Hope you'll do the same. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Next week on the show as we approach the, uh, let me see now, the, the 11th anniversary 
of the uh, September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. I will welcome Philip Marshall uh, to The Conspiracy Show. Philip is a former commercial airline pilot and also uh, did some uh, flying for some CIA covert operations. He is the author of a book called The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror, and will connect some pretty amazing dots which lead to the Saudi royal family. Uh, so stay tuned for that. That's uh, coming up next week on The Conspiracy Show. In the second hour of that show, uh, we'll meet a couple of impressive Bigfoot trackers, one of whom is a uh, former Green Beret Vietnam veteran. You will not believe their close encounters with Bigfoot. And some of the some of the qualities that they attribute to this legendary creature some call Sasquatch. That's, uh, as I say, next week. That's Sunday, September 9th. Hope you'll be along for that ride, and we've got a good show for you going right now. Dr. or Professor Gary Chang is a biology professor at Redeemer University College in Ancaster. He's a world-leading authority on science and faith as it relates to the Shroud of Turin and uh, the author of Rescuing Science from Preconceived Beliefs and A Christian's Guide to Defeating Evolution, a Biological Approach. Let me just uh, step away from the, uh, the linen cloth for a minute, uh, uh, okay. Professor Chang, and ask you, as a scientist, how yeah. did you get involved in, in, in researching the Shroud, and was there an aha moment for you when you yourself concluded this is the actual, uh, the, this is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ? Well, um... I did not hear about the Shroud until I actually started working here at Redeemer about 20 years ago. And it was happened to be somebody who had been visiting Redeemer, is a person by the name of Thaddeus Tren, who gave a talk about the Shroud. And in 1990-91, when this happened, this was after the Shroud was uh, so supposedly uh, proven to be a fake because of the carbon-14 dating. And he was saying that there were some problems with the carbon-14 dating, and he still believed it wasn't a fake. But that was the first time I even heard of a death cloth covering Christ. And actually, there are many Protestants who have never heard of this. This is uh, considered to be a Roman Catholic relic, and so as Protestants, we don't even bother with this sort of thing. But he started telling me about it, so I started to research it a bit more. And there wasn't any real aha moment about it, but there's actually been a lot of several aha moments, uh, ones that made me realize that this thing is got to be real. Uh, there's no other explanation for it. And uh, so I'm now uh, working on uh, considering not just the scientific evidence related to the shroud, but also the biblical evidence related to the Shroud. There's In the Gospel of John, there's some people say that the Shroud has never been uh, talked about in the Gospels, and the image has never been talked about, but I believe John provides us very you know, strong evidence that he knew the image was there. So, um, so but in, on the other side, what I, what I do most of the time here is I actually study sexual reproduction in insects. So that's a bit different to studying the Shroud. Indeed, but do you employ the same scientific rigor in yes. your research of the Shroud that you do uh, when you are dealing with uh, the, the reproduction of uh, fruit yeah, flies or what have you? Definitely. Uh, the, the, um, the science associated with the Shroud shows beyond any reasonable doubt that this is authentic. 
What does that mean, though? Authentic. It, authentic could mean a number of things. It could mean yes, yes it's a it's a crucif- it's a victim of a Roman crucifixion. Uh, somehow, those the stain from that body got on the yep. shroud. It could mean a number of things. Okay. Well, what authentic means is that it is the result of a resurrection event. Scientifically, there is no question. There's no question. No. The problem but is, what is a resurrection what, event? That's what that's right. Now you start to get into theology. Now you start to get into religion. And scientists have a hard time dealing with religion, but they fail to realize that their entire science is religious in nature. And that's why I wrote the book Rescuing Science from Preconceived Beliefs, because there's so much in science that people believe to be real but isn't real. It's simply an interpretation of the facts. But, uh, Gary, if a scientist were to be open-minded and examine this, based on our understanding of the known universe and the laws of the universe, wouldn't a Mm -hmm. scientist have to arrive at the conclusion that, okay, there's no way I I can prove that this is a fake, However, how the image got in there has to remain undetermined, undetermined origin. Wouldn't that be as far as a scientist could go? Uh, No, scientists go a lot further than that because many scientists believe in evolution, and evolution has no proof either. All right, we will come back. (laughs) Okay, that's another show, my friend. That is another show, and I will have you back for that one, too. The Shroud of Turin, the most studied, remarkable relic in human history. Back with more on the Shroud of Turin and my conversation with Gary Chang. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The Shroud of Turin, Gary Chang is with us. Rescuing science from preconceived beliefs. And uh, we're talking about um, religious beliefs at the interface of science science and faith as it relates to the Shroud of Turin. Um Let's uh, let's go back to this resurrection event. You, you're convinced that the only way that image, which appears to be that of a crucified male, yeah, uh, first century A.D. male, mm-hmm. uh, the only way that image got on there was from a resurrection event. Are we talking about some sort of radiation uh, that, uh, that, that did this? Yeah, that would be some sort of radiation. It's probably not a radiation that we are familiar with now because it did not completely burn the shroud. It left a very uh, clear image of just the surface. And so it's, we're not looking at the sort of radiation that uh, we 
you know, associated with things like uh, the nuclear bomb or something. Uh, a group in Italy, most recently, they believe that the best explanation is an immense uh, burst of uh, light. <laughs> so uh, that's the closest we've gotten so far to a scientific explanation of what might have caused that image on cloth. But not, not uh, just uh, any source of light. This would have to be, what, br several times brighter than the sun, I think I've read? Well, that's what they claim. Again, we're looking at it based on our understanding of the physical universe. But if this is real, and I believe it is real, this is more than just the physical universe. This is the spiritual in universe coming together with the physical universe. And we have lots of... Uh, reports in scripture when God appears there's always a light of some sort you know he appeared to uh, Moses as a burning bush uh, he appeared to the Israelites as a uh, you know a pillar of fire um, so so light somehow is a response to the spiritual world coming into one with the physical world. And very quickly, I want to get to the calls here. Uh, people are lining up but I have to ask you this the, there's something else very intriguing about the image. It's mm -hmm. not. It's not a, 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 a just a two-dimensional image. The image yeah. contains something called distance coding. Explain. Yes. Well, at, uh, when the carbon-14 dating came out, we just backtrack a bit. When the carbon-14 dating came out, that was the first scientific evidence to suggest that the shroud was a forgery. When that came out, then people started to think that maybe it's not a painting. Maybe it really is a photograph. And they started to devise methods that, photographic methods that might have been used by people back in medieval Europe in order to create this sort of thing. But even if they were to create a photographic image, as we can create a photographic image, our technology has advanced to the point that we know that the shroud, the image on the shroud, is far more than just a photographic negative. It has imprinted in it, as you would, as you can consider, it has imprinted in it computer information that gives to it a three-dimensional appearance, something that a two-dimensional photograph will not do. So again, we're, every time we think we've got it, as our technology advances, it tells us even more. And uh, and very quickly, we should point out the the uh, radiocarbon uh, test concluded yes. that the linen cloth dates back to somewhere in the mid-14th century, yes. which mm -hmm. would preclude it from being the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ who died that's, somewhere in the first century A.D. That's right. But I have in my hands here a paper written by Raymond Rogers, and Raymond Rogers was head of the STIRP team that were the group of Americans that looked at the shroud in 1978. He was convinced that it was real. Then when the carbon-14 dating came out in 1988, he was one of the people who were totally shocked and just threw the shroud out and said it had to be a forgery. But he wrote a paper later on in uh, dated 2005 where he clearly has shown, and there was somebody else who, who, uh, who uh, indicated this to him, and he had all the, all the materials to do the tests on, and he clearly shown that the radiocarbon date was not valid to determine the true age of the shroud because it was not taken from a piece of the shroud that was actually the original linen. It was taken from a repaired patch that was repaired in medieval Europe. 
All right, to the phones we go, and uh, Keith, I believe, is up first. He is in Rochester. Hello, Keith. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, several questions. I've never heard it asked if for any reason, whatever reason, the Romans had burned completely Jesus' body, how would that have affected Christian theology? On the third day, when the stone was rolled away, uh, people say that Christ is the actual Son of God, uh, would the body have uh, miraculously been transformed back into physical form? But I'm asking uh, sincerely, if the body had been reduced to ashes, how would uh, that have figured into Christian belief? It's an interesting question, although I don't know how it applies to what we're talking about uh, now, the Shroud of Turin. I mean, even if you, uh, even if you take this question as to whether Jesus was the Son of God or not, out of the equation, we still have this remarkable relic which contains evidence of some sort of a resurrection. However, having said that, uh, uh, Gary Chang, do you want to have a go at uh, Keith's interesting question? Uh, Interesting question, but uh, totally not applicable. Yes, whether he was, you know what, maybe we can, uh, we can save that so, for another show, Keith. Uh, yeah. It is an interesting question, but it doesn't relate to the Shroud of Turin, this artifact that we're discussing. Let's say hi to Joe in, is it New York City, Joe? Hello. Hi, Joe. Are you in New York City? Uh, Lackawanna. Lackawanna. Okay. Thank you and welcome. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, a comment about uh, being authentic is, in Latin, they would say, Rex Christi Crucifigari uh, Sepultura Post Obitum Imagio. Resurrectio lux passio. Light passed through that when he was resurrected. Your Latin is most impressive, Joe. So, any other th- any other <laughs> thoughts uh, aside from that? <laughs> You're saying light passed through the shroud. That is right. Yes. Well, did it did it pass through the shroud, or did it emanate from the the core of the body itself, uh, Gary Chang? Well, it probably emanated from every molecule that was on the body but it would not have been a very strong one because it only uh, traveled a very short distance. Uh, but but the, the light source had to have been from within, uh, not without. It had to have been from within, not without. And, and is, is it that fact that leads you to the conclusion that it was a resurrection event? Yes. Because what else would account for a light source from within emanating from That's every right. molecule of the human body? That's right, yeah. And, I, and the, now you do have my book, uh, yes. Rescuing Science. Uh, the chapter on the shroud is, I believe, chapter 6. But if you go to the last chapter, I actually give a theological and scientific explanation as to why there would have been light. And it actually goes back to having to believe that Adam and Eve were real people. So it's, it, it ties together the entire uh, Bible from the beginning to the end. All right. And, um, but that's an, that's a, that will take way too long to explain. Yes, obviously. Well, we'll <laughs> leave people... Uh, all we can do uh, in this hour is, is whet their appetite and uh, yeah. uh, lead them to investigate further. So the other interesting thing about this distance coding information... Mm-hmm. is, now correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard from a number of sources, and again, these are men of science, doctors, mm-hmm. doctors of medicine and so forth, mm-hmm. who've said that upon examining the image on the shroud, they were left to conclude that the image was transferred to the linen while the body was essentially uh, levitating in a, in a vertical position. Does, yes, I've heard of that. But I'm not, to me, that's, um, 
that is a possibility, uh, but we don't know what exactly happens when the uh, supernatural comes in contact with the natural. In other words, during the resurrection, they've concluded, mm -hmm. the body inside the shroud would have been hovering, but yeah. in a vertical position. Now, they claim that because of the way the image is placed on both the front and the back uh, of the body onto the shroud. They feel that maybe it could not have, the body could not have been lying flat. It had to be somewhat uh, a distance away from it. Yes, for but example, we, if it was on a slab, you would have expected yeah. some distortion in the buttocks and then in the back of, of the legs. One of the, yeah, but one of the problems we have with this is that we're dealing with an area of science and technology that we are just beginning to explore. And it could be that the way the image was created uh, by a technology we don't know could have produced that effect and it could have still been lying against the body. A quick question, and I think I asked you when we met face to face, uh, and this again coming from someone who's absolutely uh, fascinated by the shroud, um, that is what, what has been raised, I think it's a legitimate question, and that is mm -hmm. the length of hair. Uh, yeah. If it was Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. um, would he have had, this is, a, this is an age-old debate, would he have had long hair? We hear that uh, the, the typical um, um, Hebraic male kept, mm -hmm. kept his hair short. And then we have uh, Paul's letter, I believe, to the Corinthians, in which he is basically calling men wearing long hair an abomination. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think one of the problems we have is that we're confusing our cultures. And uh, from what I have heard is that uh, the Semitic at that time, the Jewish uh, rabbis, and he would have been considered a rabbi, had long hair. The other thing is the figure on the, uh, the, the image on the uh, cloth is, mm -hmm. is quite tall, somewhere around six foot. Well, it's under six foot. Uh, and also you have to keep in mind distortion as a result of stretching. Uh, so it's probably anywhere between uh, five, seven to six feet. Five, seven to six feet. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, people seem to think, you know, that people were shorter back then. That is a uh, urban myth. I don't know. I mean, I am a biologist. Uh, I, you, uh, people have not changed since we were first created. Uh, our statute depends on our heredity, depends on our environment, depends on what we eat. Um, people could have been 5'8", could have been 6'2". Uh, some people claim that this person was too tall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's pulling at straws. Uh, Gary, when you lecture and you bring your replica of the shroud with you, how do people mm. react, uh, people that uh, maybe that go to your lectures and are, and are somewhat skeptical? Um, the skeptics are always convinced. I have never had a skeptic not convinced. Other people just don't care to look at it. You mean the skeptics come and they are convinced after yes. they hear your lecture and see the yes. shroud that it is the authentic burial cloth of Christ? Not only are they convinced, I see some of them undergoing very powerful emotional uh, experiences. It is a powerful statement. It is the gospel in uh, con condensed within a single picture. When you see this and you realize that this was the God who died for you, what else can you do but bow down and worship? That's a pretty powerful statement coming from a man of science. Gary, a real pleasure. 
Well, thank you, Richard. Love to have you back on, and we'll uh, and we'll discuss evolution versus creation. Okay. Bye-bye. If we can find someone willing to debate you, because that's a rare breed, as you know. <laughs> yeah. Gary Chang, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can find out everything you need to know about The Conspiracy Show, upcoming shows, past shows. There's even a book club at the website. Jot it down. Put it on your fridge. www.richardserrett.com. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the program, friends. And the new guy is stepped behind the audio board. Uh, David Gaskin, I told you last week, my technical producer, is leaving for Kathmandu in, what, two weeks now? And uh, so he's training the new guy, Tim. I don't know much about him. I know he likes Red Bull. He seems competent. Uh, but how do I really know he's not... Illuminati. He could be a plant. You have to be mindful of these things on this program. Welcome to the show. Uh, We look behind the curtain. We shine a light backstage in order to expose the puppet masters on The Conspiracy Show. Who's pulling the strings? Who's really stage managing this huge show, this production, our reality? We're about to find out. Every year, the most powerful, wealthiest, influential individuals in the world, kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and those seeking those officers and bankers and industrialists. They gather at a luxurious five-star hotel and meet under extreme secrecy and security 
to do what? We're not exactly sure. But we do know the mainstream media totally ignores this impressive gathering, which is very strange to say the least. It's called the Bilderberg meeting. And one thing is for sure, whatever they're doing behind those closed doors, they're not playing canasta. Over the next hour, you're going to learn all about this powerful cabal. And tonight's guest is here to tell all about the Bilderbergs. Mark Dice is a media analyst, political activist, author, who in an entertaining and educational way gets people to question our celebrity-obsessed culture and the role the elite, secret societies and mainstream media plays in shaping our lives. We're going to talk about a very powerful secret society known as the Bilderbergs. Mark Dice is the author of The Illuminati, Facts and Fiction, Big Brother, The Orwellian Nightmare Come True, and The New World Order, Facts and Fiction. Also, The Resistance Manifesto joins us on the line from beautiful Oceanside, California. Mark, how are you? I'm doing well, and while some people don't know about the Bilderberg Group, most people probably don't, more and more people are learning about it. And what I find fascinating is that the Bilderberg Group isn't a conspiracy theory. It's not the figment of my imagination or others. It, It is a real organization that meets once a year with the power most powerful men and women in the world they have shut down the whole hotel there's armed security private security services secret service you name it out there guarding these guys for three days while they meet in a hotel and plot and plan the course of the world and what's fascinating is most people have not heard of the Bilderberg group you haven't seen it on CNN, on Fox News, uh, maybe I don't know up in Canada. Maybe the B, uh, the, you know, the uh, the British Broadcasting System up there may address it a uh, little bit more than the American media, which seems to be some of the most controlled uh, m- media in the world. Richard, well, we have uh, the, the the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. They may touch on it. Um, it it doesn't get a lot of play in the media up here. You might get the odd headline. And it's treated in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, like, oh, uh, you know, world leaders in town to discuss, uh, you know, the new world order, ha, 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 that kind of thing. But you're right. that the, the, the average person, quite frankly, doesn't have time. I mean, we are, we're so busy running around trying to, uh, to, to pay the mortgage and the rent and put food on the table that we've totally lost sight of the big picture, which is exactly... I gather what they want to keep us so preoccupied and distracted. Um, And part of that is the celebrity culture, which you rail against. That's all part of keeping groups like the Bilderbergs in the shadows uh, where they can do whatever they want. And to say that this group isn't powerful, to say that they don't matter, to say that there's not a blackout policy in place in most of the major mainstream media around the world is not true. Uh, it, there is a conspiracy. There is a blackout in place. It's not a conspiracy theory. You, you can't say that it's a theory or that there's no agenda in place, that when the Bilderberg Group meets every year, as they have since 1954, uh, that it's not newsworthy. You can't say that when 100 to 150 of the world's most powerful men and women get together, that it's not an interesting and newsworthy event. So right there, there is a conspiracy uh, of a cover-up, and we've caught them 
time and time again, year after year after year. And maybe later on in the show, we can get into what happened at the 2012 Bilderberg conference just a couple months ago as we tried to push the issue into the mainstream media to try to shame them, to, to pressure them to break this blackout, uh, which we somewhat successfully did on, on a small scale. Uh, we were hoping to get CNN, Fox News, all these people together. Every year, whenever there's these big global economic forums, as you know, the, the G8, the G20, it's major news. It's the top story around the world. They're, they're talking about all these world leaders coming together into town and meeting and planning and deciding what they're going to do with society and with the world. But then the, every year when the Bilderberg Group meets, year after year after year, it's literally – a complete blackout in the mainstream. It is very odd. Mark Dice is with us. We're talking about the Bilderbergs. Let's go back, and, and you mentioned 1954. Uh, give us a little bit of the history. Why did the Bilderbergs come together? Where did they meet, and how did they get their name? They started in 1954. Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands decided to organize a meeting to talk about the financial issues facing the world. So he sent out letters to some of the most prominent politicians, media moguls, international royalty, uh, and said, hey, let's come and meet. Let's have a secret private conference. We'll kind of talk about the ins an insider's view on what's happening in the world. We're going to meet at the, at the Bilderberg Hotel in Oosterbeck, Holland, in, in the Netherlands. It was 1954. And so at that meeting, there were about 60, 60 to 80 men there and they decided that they would meet once a year uh, and call themselves the Bilderberg Group, naming themselves after the hotel uh, where they first met. And that was again in 1954, and literally every single year, except for one, I think I read at the onset of World War II, I believe they had to cancel their meeting, but with the exception of one year, they've met every single year, uh, every spring under the guise of complete secrecy, uh, it, not a word in any of the mainstream media. It's fascinating. And when you, when you want to see how the world functions, when you're interested in geopolitics, you're just when you want to find out how the world works, you're missing huge pieces of the puzzle if you don't find out about the Bilderberg Group because those are the key Movers and shakers. You mentioned mentioned uh, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, and I understand Queen Beatrix is uh, uh, is another uh, sort of permanent member of this group. Many royals attend, many industrialists, members of the press, as we'll soon discover. David Rockefeller, of course, but Prince Bernhard is interesting. Uh, he was a former SS officer, and then later went on to. Um, well, he was very high up in the Royal Dutch uh, Shell Oil Company. Yeah, I, he now you look at some of the people that are involved in this, and I, I have their tax returns, and I just obtained them a few months ago. They're real. They're not. At first, when I was first tipped off about them, I, I thought maybe this is a hoax. But the Bilderberg Group functions as a legal entity, as it has to, and so it has to have a checking account and a, a checkbook in order to pay for the hotel and security and the food and and, and things like that. So. They're not handing suitcases of cash or gold over to the hotels that they're staying in. They have a legal entity, and they're registered as a 501c3 
tax-exempt organization, which in, in America means that you have to have certain uh, pages of your tax returns made available to the public uh, to find out who's paying you. If you're, you're saying you're a nonprofit tax-exempt foundation, the law requires you to show who's paying you and how much they're paying you. And you have to make these legally uh, publicly available. So I was able this year, just a few months ago, to track down the 2009, uh, 2008, 9, and 10 uh, Bilderberg and 11 Bilderberg tax returns. And it's fascinating to see who pays them. David Rockefeller's on that list, you know, $50,000 a year, $75,000 a year. Some of these guys are paying them. Uh, you, you know, you got Henry Kissinger, David Rockefeller, some of the two, the two key key members there given you know 50 grand 75,000 dollars every year uh Goldman Sachs is on there one of the you know big banking uh, cartel funding these guys so it's th this is certainly not uh, a conspiracy theory Bilderberg group is a conspiracy fact and and it doesn't get any more you can't get any more clear evidence than their tax returns. <laughs> you know? Right, indeed. The, yeah, there, there's a paper trail there, and, and um, uh, you've uncovered that nicely, Mark Dice. Uh, now, I, I mentioned Prince Bernhard, and I just thought, I thought that was interesting. Here we are only nine years after the close of the Second World War and the complete surrender of, of Germany, and yet we have a high-ranking uh, member of the Nazi Party uh, involved in bringing this elite group together. I'm just wondering if there's any significance to that. Well, his goal with this, of course, is is to forge the New World Order, the One World Government, which was, of course, a Nazi goal as well, to create their Third Reich, their thousand-year reign, as they thought that they would, you know, Hitler would evolve and, and grow into a, a god that would essentially rule. There's some interesting background information on this Bilderberg group. So they started in 1954. So how do we know about them today? Uh, how did we get to a point where we know where they're going to meet, which hotel they're going to meet in? And then this year we had four or 500 people go and hang out outside that hotel and protest for four days, sending up press releases, calling the media, trying to alert the mainstream media to pressure them to cover this group. So how did we get to this point? Well, back in 1957, just a couple years after they were founded, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, a Scripps Howard News Service and a Chicago Tribune columnist named Westbrook Pegler was tipped off about the Bilderberg group by a reader of his who actually happened to just stumble across the hotel in 1957 in Brunswick, Georgia, where they were staying and called this columnist and said, hey, there's something really weird going on down here. I think you might want to take a look at it. So Westbrook Pegler did some investigating and he found that at the time, uh, in 1957, there were 67 people that met at the Bilderberg Group meeting at this uh, private hotel in Brunswick, Georgia. And that is how we discovered the Bilderberg Group is, is back in, you know, three years after they started, essentially, uh, they, were, they were discovered by this columnist, you know, prize, Pulitzer Prize winning guy. Uh, and then if you follow the trail, because I like to go back to the source. I, I like to find out how we know what we know now. You know, I like I like source documents. I, I like to just go back to the root. And so that's what I did in tracking this Bilderberg group. And it's fascinating to see then that uh, another man named Willis Carto found uh, Douglas uh, – found um, 
found this guy's Westerbrook Pegler's article and then started doing his his own investigations. And then Jim Tucker, who you, you probably know about, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Yes. Jim is a longtime Bilderberg tracker. Jim then found out about it from Willis Carto. So the trail, the, the, the summary goes back to the Bilderberg Group started in 54. Willis Carto, uh, or no, it started in 54. Uh, and then 57, somebody found out about it, tipped off this Pulitzer Prize winning, I'll call him this Westbrook Pegler. Then Willis Carto learned about it from him started writing newspapers and things about it. And that is where Jim Tucker learned about it and started working for Willis Carto. Jim Tucker, who is the premier Bilderberg expert, the author of the Bilderberg Diary, which I do hold in my hand. I was lucky enough to get an autographed copy from Jim Tucker when I met him at Bilderberg 2012. And and this is the key. Have you read this book, Richard? Uh, no, but I've read Daniel Estulin's uh, uh, book about the Bilderberg Group. Here's That's another you know, uh, uh, a great Bilderberg tracker, uh, Daniel Estelin, who, um, whose parents emigrated from the, the, uh, the Soviet Union, and he, he has called Canada home uh, for many years, although I think he now resides in Spain. But I've read Daniel's book. Yeah, I, w- I recommend Jim Tucker's over. Uh, Daniel's book is okay, but I, I, just the writing style, I just don't like the writing style. He sort of tells it, uh, he, he sort of sensationalizes it a little bit telling it as it's like a spy novel uh, whereas Jim Tucker just sort of just gives you the history of who it is and what they do there's a lot of photos in his book as well all right um, listen uh, Mark let me uh, just jump in here we'll take a time out we'll come back and we'll find out who exactly uh, attends these meetings so we'll get some names uh, we've mentioned Prince or you've mentioned Prince Bernhard and we talked about Queen Beatrix and David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger and and then we'll find out all most important of all of course is what goes on at these meetings what sorts of decisions affecting all of us us mere useless eaters, as Kissinger once referred to us, I believe, at a Bilderberg meeting. What happens behind closed doors at these five-store hotels? Uh, We'll we'll, uh, get to that with Mark Dice after this time out here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, Sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740. 
or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. And we're back with Mark Dice, the author of The Illuminati, Facts and Fiction, Big Brother, The Orwellian Nightmare Come True, The Resistance Manifesto, and The New World Order, Facts and Fiction. Mark is a media analyst, political activist, and tonight we're talking about the Bilderberg Group. Now, uh, started in 54, Prince Bernhard was... uh, I guess the principal architect. Now, are we talking about the movers and shakers from North America and Europe? Uh, what what uh, what countries generally are involved in these annual meetings? Yeah, prim- primarily North America and Europe. Sort of a, a lesser powerful sister organization is the Trilateral Commission, which sort of deals with the Asian, uh, American, European relations. But that's a very low second <laughs> compared to uh, really even probably a third or the fourth down. I mean, you got the Council on Foreign Relations, which is under the Bilderberg Group in in terms of power. Uh, but yeah, th- this organization, man, I'm telling you, Bill Clinton went to see these guys in 1991 uh, to sort of get. Th- they wanted to feel them out. Essentially, they they bring candidates in. Who they want to who they want to field out, who they want to field out to become president of America or prime minister of England or different prime ministers around Europe. So these guys will bring in these candidates uh, to basically, you know, kind of tell them what's up and say, "Hey, you want to you want us to be make you king? You want you want us to to put our power behind you? Well, here's how it's going to work, buddy." Here's what you need to do for us. And so it's interesting to see how Bill Clinton uh, just just happened to attend Bilderberg in 1991 and then in 1992 was, of course, crowned uh, president of the United States. The, the, the list goes on and on of powerful politicians in Europe and in America attending a Bilderberg meeting when they're campaigning for office and then – it's it's usually the one which attends the Bilderberg meeting is the one who wins, the one who gets office. For example, you might be aware of this, of course, Richard, this is for the audience, but uh, when Barack Obama was president, uh, was running for president in 2008, during the Bilderberg meeting that year, he actually disappeared to attend the meeting. And what he did is he has this whole press corps following him around on the plane wherever he goes. Whatever city he goes to, you've got dozens of photographers and reporters following you around. So what he did is they got all the press on the plane at whatever campaign stop they were at. And he snuck off the back of the plane. They shut the door. Plane took off. Plane's gone in the air. And the press corps says, whoa. What happened here? Where where did Barack go? <laughs> you know, like we're on this plane because we're following Barack. We're supposed to be riding with Barack. He's not here. What the heck just happened? What happened was the Bilderberg Group meeting was going on, and Robert Gibbs. You can find this clip on YouTube if you just search for uh, Robert Gibbs Bilderberg. And Robert Gibbs actually admits that there was quote a meeting. Didn't didn't mention the Bilderberg Group meeting, but it was happening that same day. So you, you go figure. It's not exactly jumping to conclusions here by thinking that that's what he had, that's what he did. Because Robert Gibbs said there were quote some people that wanted to have a private meeting with them. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, okay. just that's a, the kind of invitation I guess you don't refuse. Well, if you want to be the king, right? Uh, and and you know uh, that's how the system works. If the Bilderberg Group meet, wants to meet with you, you're going to go meet with them. So the, that was 2008. Where was the uh, the Bilderberg meeting that year, by the way? 
It was in Chantilly, Virginia, uh, just about a half an hour away from Washington, D.C. That's right. That's right. Now I remember. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, he was in the neighborhood, so he thought he'd just drop on by. Well, you mentioned Bill Clinton earlier, Mark. It's funny because I remember when Clinton, uh, here here he was, a, excuse the expression, but you know, it's it's often used uh, in sort of for shorthand. But Arkansas, the, the the governor of Arkansas, a backwater state. No offense to the good people of Arkansas, but not exactly one of the you know the prime the, the you know the uh, a powerful uh, not a powerful state. And uh, he was probably at the time I think I'd heard making less than fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, and yet, after he attends the Bilderberg meeting. He's suddenly pronounced by the mainstream media as the front row or as the front runner for the uh, the nomination for the Democratic Party. And people like myself were sitting back saying, wait a second, I've never even heard of this guy. All of a sudden, the mainstream media is uh, spoon feeding us as pablum saying he's the front runner. I just thought that was very curious. Well, that's the power of the media. And when we say, quote, they control the media. You know, let's let's be a little more specific because I found out who they are <laughs> and it's Operation Mockingbird, which in America was uncovered in 1975 in some congressional hearings where these hearings uncovered that the CIA was paying off the major editors and reporters of, of all the major outlets in America, print and broadcast, television, radio, newspaper, magazine, whatever – they had these guys in their pocket, and this came out in congressional hearings. And they were paying these people under the table in today's dollars a billion dollars a year under the table. About $250 million a year back in the 70s. So the, the dollar value today, a billion dollars a year. The Operation Mockingbird program was getting money funneled through the CIA two editors of CBS, ABC, NBC, to, to act as gatekeepers. I have a bachelor's degree in communication. I've worked in television before. I know how powerful, you, you know how powerful media is. And so when the Bilderberg Group chose Bill Clinton, and they both had a mutual agreement that Bill Clinton's going to be their guy, and that Bill Clinton will do X, Y, and Z, or pretty much whatever the Bilderberg Group wants, once that decision was made at the 1991 Bilderberg meeting, then you have the, the, the editors, the CEOs, the, the people on the board of directors of all these major media outlets. And so they're the ones that, dis, that decide what their news organization is going to cover. And so that all comes out of Bilderberg. And then when your boss, if you're just a lonely reporter or a segment producer and your, your producer comes up to you, Richard, you know, you work in the industry. Oh, yes. When your your boss comes up to you and says, hey, Richard, go do a story on this, you're going to do it. I mean, you know, you, you pretty much have to. That's, that's your job. It's just like if you're an engineer and your boss comes over and says, hey, draw up some plans to, you know, redesign, you know, product XYZ, you're going to redesign the product X. You might fight it and say, hey, uh, product X is great. It doesn't need to be done. Hey, man, that's your boss. Do you want to keep your job? Then, then you're going to listen to what he says. And so that's, that's why you started seeing all of a sudden everybody, you know, the, it's, it's the, the human brain is so interesting that what the mind, what the eyes see and the ears hear, the mind believes. So if the newspapers just start telling you, oh, hey, Bill Clinton's a great guy, you just, oh man, I, I heard Bill Clinton's a great guy. <laughs> I just heard that somewhere. Well, the thing is, uh, then what is it that David Rockefeller said to Bill Clinton or Bill Clinton 
said to David Rockefeller that got the Bilderbergs behind him. I'm pretty sure that they propose that Bilderbergs sort of propose an agenda and say, "Hey, look, this is what we this is what we want to do. Are, are, you know, are you willing to do this for us? If you are, then we'll put you know we'll put everybody behind you." Hey, you want the Washington Post to to write a big piece about you? Hey, you want CNN to start, you know, just putting out stories that says, "Oh, hey, Bill, this is Bill Clinton's a new shining star." Oh, oh, hey, man. I mean, <laughs> you know, we got the board of directors, uh, you know, sitting right over there. So, uh, you know, we got the key, the head editor, you know, head head editor of the Evening News is sitting right over at the table, Bill. So, if you want to, you know, be president, the most powerful man in the world, <laughs> hey, man, all we ask is that you do this, 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 and don't do this, don't do this, and you know, when you get that little phone call and it it says, hey, uh, it's it's us, uh, you're just, you know, you're just going to listen to us. So, if you have. Uh, and I'm trying to remember whether Clinton was actually a sitting governor when he ran for president. I believe he was. Yes. And then you had Barack Obama, who was then a senator. When you have elected officials who hold public office attending a meeting where there are other world leaders and, and members of royal families and so forth, uh, is there anything illegal about that? Well, it's interesting you ask that because in America, it's been something on the books for a while called the Logan Act, which actually prevents elected officials from entering into private discussions and negotiations with foreign entities and foreign governments, which is exactly what uh, happens at the Bilderberg Group. And they had what's called the Chatham House Rules in effect, which is the same same rules in the parliament uh, they have in – in Britain is that when you enter the Bilderberg Group uh, conference, you agree basically that not – you won't say who was there. You won't say what was talked about. You won't talk about any context that it was talked about and then pretty much don't want you to even mention that you were there or that it, it even exists. Uh, it's, they're doing a great job because as you know, hardly anybody knows about this. Did you? I did a video a while ago, maybe – four or five months ago, building up to the Bilderberg Group, approaching the Bilderberg Group, meaning, I don't know if you saw this, I don't know how much you followed my work, but I did a man on the street where I randomly interviewed people, one after the other after the other, asking them if they've heard of the Bilderberg Group. And it was the 33rd person that I had approached that had not only heard of the Bilderberg Group, (laughs) but get this, Richard, recognized me and was a, her and her husband were a fan of my work. So she said, yes, I actually I do know about the Bilderberg Group. And there then she go. recognized me and she said, I know you too. <laughs> but it was one out of 33 people, which is not a lot of people. Right, right. And, and um, even that one in 33 people who knows who or has heard the name Bilderberg, do they fully comprehend what goes on uh, behind closed doors? And, and really, can, can any of us say that we do for sure? How does a lot of this information get to people like you or Jim Tucker or Daniel Estulin? How how does this information get leaked out if security is so tight? That's a great question. Jim Tucker, for years, now really since since 1975, since he's been covering it. uh, Well, I guess he started covering it in 75. He started in 1983, literally going to the places. And so what happened was... He, there is an insider or there's been a series of insiders, moles, which actually leak information to Jim Tucker. And so Jim Tucker is just an independent journalist working for a small newspaper called uh, – what was called The Spotlight years ago. Uh, and they, they were 
just an independent news organization, and one of their goals was to focus and expose the Bilderberg Group. And they maintained a source that was legitimate within the group that would leak out where they're going to be, where they're going to stay, and then Jim would go to the hotel a couple days beforehand, stay in the hotel, befriend a lot of the staff, tell them, hey, I'm a reporter, there's this conference going on, and essentially convinces the staff to overhear, because there's, you know, there's food being delivered and water being refilled and things. There's, there's, you know, staff in these, in these hotels, as any fancy hotel has tons of conferences. So to, to the staff, this is nothing new unless they're informed about what it is. And so, he essentially befriends the staff, gets them to sort of overhear certain things and then call him and tell him what they overheard. And his moles also report information and have stolen uh, itineraries from inside the, the meeting. And almost everything that his sources have told him has checked out. When, As you know, Richard, when you go into this this sea of conspiracy there's it's hard to find the facts it's hard to find the truth it's it's a lengthy process and so i would assume i did assume that you know jim tucker is this accurate information is this there's just so much garbage out there and speculation but in my research over the last oh god what's been seven years Jim Tucker's been very, very accurate. And okay, let's not... uh, hold on to that, Mark. We'll uh, take a time out. Come back. Mark Dice, media analyst, political activist, and author, talking about the Bilderberg Group. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We are back with Mark Dice, the author of The New World Order, Facts and Fiction, The Resistance Manifesto, Big Brother, The The Orwellian Nightmare Come True, and his uh, latest, The Illuminati Facts and Fiction, uh, is that the latest? No, actually, the Big Big Brother is uh, the newest one, isn't it, uh, Mark? 
Yeah, Big Brother, The Orwellian Nightmare Come True has been out at the latest one. You can get it on Amazon.com, uh, Kindle or Nook, or if, if you have an iPad, it's not in the i iBook store, so you just get the Nook uh, or the Nook or the Kindle app, and then you can download the ebook for like six or seven bucks. And that that book focuses on it's a, essentially an analysis of George Orwell's novel, 1984, very famous, published in 1949 obviously talking about predicting an Orwellian creepy future. And so what I've done with Big Brother, The Orwellian Nightmare Come True is I took trade journals, mainstream news, uh, patent applications, and just kind of cross-referenced it with everything that you find in George Orwell's book to show that if we don't stand up for personal liberty, for freedom, uh, if we don't get our moral compass back uh, – calibrated again, then we're really headed in for an Orwellian nightmare. And then the other ones are about you know, the Illuminati facts and fiction. I'm a big fan of finding the facts and clearing out the fiction. And in, 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 in my experience in the conspiracy genre, the conspiracy world, it's hard to find facts. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of fantasy, a lot of disinformation, frauds, but there is a lot of factual, legitimate information. So in my books, New World Order facts and fiction, Illuminati facts and fiction. My my goal was to separate the facts from the fiction to show what could be proven, and to separate that from what is speculation and what's a fraud, what's uh, what's uh, right. clearly not uh, and legitimate. With, with, with the Bilderbergs, I mean, we're left to speculate a fair bit because we're not getting we're not getting a lot of information. Certainly not from the mainstream media, which, as you have pointed out, is very suspicious. Given this is a, a, a huge coming together of the most powerful industrialists, politicians, uh, bankers, uh, in some cases scientists, and so forth. It, do we know? Uh, well, let me ask you this, because you attended, the, you were at least, you were in the vicinity during the last Bilderberg meeting. Uh, was Mitt Romney in attendance? No, uh, uh, he did not come. Um, it, it is very interesting. Mitch Daniels came, uh, governor out of Indiana, speculating, uh, causing a lot of speculation that he would become Mitt Romney's running mate. Um, but I think... The, this year especially, there was so much attention on the Bilderberg Group that if Mitt Romney were to have attended, it would have been huge news. There, there was no way that they could keep something that, like that quiet. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I'm, I'm confident that there was a conference call in, you know, Mitt Romney conference calling into the Bilderberg Group. But you know, you, you are right in in the fact that it's it's hard to discover what they're doing, but the years of investigations that Jim Tucker's done clearly shows that the information that his sources give him, I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it almost always pans out. Uh, for example, they, they, his sources told him that the uh, Iraq war would not start until the spring of 2003 when everybody was expecting it to actually start in 2002. And lo and behold, he said, nope, Bilderberg said it's not happening until next year. And then it, it didn't happen until the following year. So, so it is true then, um, or, or you would agree, that, that, that part of what the Bilderbergs uh, do is to, to plan, orchestrate, foment war. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. They Because there's so many elements that go into war, uh, particularly the the financial gain uh, on the on the part of the warmongers. So the Bilderberg Group is the perfect cloak to plot and plan the most profitable wars at the most opportune times when, I mean, really this should be planned in, in Congress. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and I could only imagine the, the callous calculated decisions that go into plotting and planning when is the most opportune time to start the war so that these moguls can shift around their assets and they can plot and plan uh, accordingly. And the the subprime uh, uh, collapse of, uh, of 2008, um, I had read, I'm not sure if it was Jim Tucker, who said that he had it on good authority. Uh, that someone had uh, stood up during the Bilderberg meeting and basically said, "Now is the time to launch this scheme," which was the subprime collapse. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember when Jim Tucker came out with that. Uh, his book stops at 2005 um, and was published back in 2005, so it doesn't have anything beyond that. Uh, those are found online, but I, I do recall him saying that the Bilderberg Group predicted the financial collapse would come, the subprime housing bubble collapse, and of course, uh, it, it did. He, he predicted, I believe, uh, the, the downfall, downfall of Margaret Thatcher. He said that Bilderberg was very angered. Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of England, who was really instrumental in resisting uh, England folding into the European Union and surrendering its sovereignty and including its sovereign currency, the pound. And then out she uh, went. Listen, let me take a time out here, Mark. We'll come back. I also want to talk to you about whether the Bilderbergs have the power uh, to remove uh, presidents from office. Uh, for example, Richard Nixon. And uh, we'll discuss other um, facets of this very elite, secretive, powerful group, the Bilderbergs. Back with more of my conversation with Mark Dice here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. A few minutes remain with uh, Mark Dice, the author of the Illuminati Facts and Fiction, Big Brother, The Orwellian Nightmare Come True, and uh, others. Uh, he appears in several groundbreaking documentary films, including Invisible Empire, The 9-11 Chronicles, and has been featured on television shows, including the History Channel's Decoded, the Sundance Channel's Love Lust, Secret Societies, and more. He says he enjoys enlightening zombies, as he calls them, ignorant people, about the mass media's effect on our culture, pointing out Big Brother's prying eyes and exposing elite secret societies along with scumbag politicians and their corrupt political agendas. Oh, do, you, do you believe, Mark, that everyone that attends the Bilderberg meeting really knows what the end game is, this, you know, this implementation of a new world order, or are some of the individuals that go there well-meaning, well-intended? 
Yeah, it, it's same with the Freemasons, same with the build, you know, Bohemian Grove. You can't lump all of them into the same category. Although it's the the leadership, the steering committee, the inner circles are all in in cahoots uh, uh, together. But you have a steering committee and an inner circle of you know regular members. And then you have you have some people that just have no idea. They just the, the, some of these CEOs go to you know meeting conference after conference after conference. Some of these guests might not even understand. Hey, it's okay. It's a Bilderberg. It's a very powerful secret meeting. Da da da. So I mean, you get some of these people that are showing up to here may not really even have a clue. They just think eh, it's kind of another way to network and rub shoulders with some like-minded people. But the core are clearly have their agenda and and within any organization there's compartmentalization and and within within any group there's going to be subgroups that don't know what the other groups are are participating in or planning and so I mean, you look at some of the lists like here's a 2012 attendee list i mean you got just chairman and ceo after ceo of just major company after major company uh, but then you have certain companies like the gold, you know, Goldman Sachs. Does Bill Gates attend most years? I don't know about most years. He has attended uh, previous times. There's rumors that he did attend this year's meeting. There's a couple photos of somebody that certainly looks like Bill Gates. Uh, he was not. I don't think he was on the attendee list. Not everybody is on the attendee list. And what's interesting for anybody that wants to see the footage, to see what it's like, these guys coming into the hotel, go to YouTube and just search for Welcome to Bilderberg or Welcome to Bilderberg Mark Dice, D-I-C-E. And you'll find my footage that I compiled showing the Bilderbergers arriving. And so since even though this was close to D.C., a lot of these guys – didn't drive in in their car. They either had a, uh, a private driver drive them in or, of course, if they flew in from another part of the country or the world, they had a private car and a driver drive them from the airport. And so almost every attendee came in in this black Lincoln Continental private, not a, not a limo, but just a private car with extra, I think it's called 5% tint on the back windows, blocking it out so that you couldn't see who it was that was coming in and that was arriving. Because obviously, these people don't, a lot of these people don't want to be known that they're attending such a secretive and powerful meeting. What do you think they were discussing this year? What, 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 uh, what, what sort of things are they scheming about? Well, the main issue, I think, would be whether the elite, the elite wants to back Mitt Romney or whether they want to back Barack Obama again for president. So I'm assuming that would be it. And it looks like looks like they may actually want to back Mitt Romney. Uh, some of these people double down and, and bet on both sides. And in a sense, it doesn't really matter who becomes president because the, you know, it's the left – foot takes a few steps, the right foot takes a step, and it's this one machine that just kind of keeps on going. So you've got the worst of the worst. But uh, I, the main thing I think would be what's who, who's going to be president next year. And then I think the financial collapse – is, is, is how is this going to play out? Is it going to be a collapse? Is it just going to be a slow downgrade? So I think they're trying to to manage – this this coming economic 
uh, decline of of the world. Uh, Is there a some, depopulation agenda behind the Bilderbergs as well? Oh yeah, but I mean, these are the people that manage resources, and I mean, we're. You know, our, you, your eyes' biggest problem is is managing the resources. You know, for dinner for our family. You know, th- these are the people that are 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 plotting and managing resources and food for for entire populations. And so, what happens is they get they get so removed from the people, and and people people in countries and populations become literally a pieces on a chessboard to these people. And so since these elite, this is the modern day Illuminati, they see we're getting on the verge of unlocking the unlimited lifespan of human beings through whether it's some sort of genetic code where they can pre-program human beings so that we don't age anymore or through transhumanism where they just send little nanorobots or or cyborg parts into your body so that the human beings could live for 500 years or, or for forever. So they, they see that coming in the very near future. And so they fear that if that happens, that there's going to be too many people on the planet. There's going to be, they're going to use too many resources. And so this one of the key agendas of this elite Illuminati is reducing the world's population. But but if that doesn't work out, there's there's some really uh, bad things in the cards that they could just pull uh, to to massively reduce the world's population, which they they feel would be uh, for the best of humanity. Would they resort to um, um, a political assassination? Could the Bilderbergs be the the group that are? ultimately behind some of these so-called lone nut gunmen well if if the bilderberg group tells if you're working for the bilderberg group and you become president and then you you're not towing the bilderberg party line you're in trouble but i don't think that anybody would b- go into that position without really knowing the full consequences so i, I don't think anybody like barack obama really cares with the you know what kind of evil deeds he has to do to become ruler i think that he doesn't care it's the power it's it's an exciting thrill ride to become the president of the united states and most people will do that at any cost what about richard nixon i, I i've i've often heard it suggested that nixon was the victim of an assassination of another sort rather than uh, you know, finding some crazed gunman and, and maybe programming him to be an assassin, they simply created the Watergate scandal uh, and that this was done because Nixon uh, was opposed to uh, GATT, the General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs, which was sort of the forerunner of the, the North American uh, trade, free trade agreement. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, the same similar allegation has been said that uh, former governor of of New York, Elliot Spitzer, who was uh, disgraced, as as many people know, this guy was governor of New York, and he was seen. You might recall he was arrested with that under uh, with that nineteen uh, year old prostitute or a real real young prostitute uh, a couple years ago. You know, doing these high end hookers, and a lot of people think that he was actually brought down because he was poking around and causing problems for the banking industry. Uh, tightening up, wanted to tighten up regulations, and so yeah, he was a former uh, prosecutor, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. He he knew what was going on with the banking fraud and with Glass-Steagall and the housing bubble. And he, wa- he saw it coming and wanted to stop it or wanted to get some answers and find out what happened. And I, and I think – I think what happened is you might have maybe got a phone call, maybe you get a warning and say, "Hey, buddy, <laughs> you know, just, don't do that. Just just turn around, go the other way." And if you don't do that, then all of a sudden, whoops! Hey, look at this. We found you with the hooker. Because when you're the governor of of a huge state like that, I mean, these guys with the push of a button can just find out what you're doing, who you talk to, where you are. I mean, they got dirt and dossiers on so many people. Where if you want, if you're not playing games, man. You know, if you're going and seeing prostitutes and your political opponents, uh, your Bilderberg group wants you to push a certain agenda through, if, if you're not going to play ball, then guess what? You're getting busted in a prostitution scandal. Pure and simple. It, it seems like uh, even though, d- even despite the, the um, efforts of the Bilderbergs, every once in a while an outsider makes his way to high office can't be necessarily controlled or managed. Sometimes they may force a vice president on him that'll keep an eye on him. I'm thinking of Bush and Reagan. Reagan, yep. from what I'm told, was feared by a lot of Republicans. He was an unknown quantity. He was uh, a radical, uh, radical conservative. <clears throat> excuse me. And um, the the I guess the establishment wasn't quite sure what to make of Reagan, whether they can they could control him, and they foisted the former director of the CIA, onto Reagan's ticket in order to keep an eye on him. But <clears throat> I mean, what is your sense that the, the, that, that, uh, the Bilderbergs have everything locked down now? They can guarantee who's going to be president or prime minister? Or is it they do their best uh, to make sure that their, their guy gets in? And if their guy doesn't get in, they make sure that he's quickly surrounded by people who will control him. Yeah, I think that's a very good assessment because these people, it's, it's very important to stress, they're not all powerful. They're powerful. They're very powerful, but they're not all powerful. And so even with coercion, fraud, threats, blackmail, voter fraud, I believe that they are only limited in their power. And when you have a political rogue, someone like a Jesse Ventura, who became a governor. That's a, a perfect example. The, the yes. State of Minnesota. See, these people can't as, as smart as they are and as many bases as they have covered with their paid propagandists in the news and their paid political operatives as as slick and as prepared, as planned out as they are. They're not perfect. And so you, you can get somebody like Governor Jesse Ventura, who just on a it's it's tough to fight the grassroots once those grassroots start start spreading it just it spreads slowly maybe but it spreads and it spreads and spreads you can't really stop it well that's so, you know there, you, you've left us with a, a little bit of hope uh, you know that every once in a while a real uh, populist uh, can get in not necessarily owned uh, and controlled by um, these these unelected oligarchs or the Bilderbergs in this case mark real pleasure and uh, I thank you for this hour, really enlightening, and uh, perhaps we woke up a few zombies, as you like to call them. I, I am excited, um, but these are, are definitely some really powerful, powerful people. So, Well, as you, you know, the old saying, they've got trillions of dollars at their disposal, they've got armies at their disposal, we only have the truth. In other words, they don't stand a chance. Mark, <laughs> thank you yeah. for this.
God bless. All right. Uh, back next week, uh, we'll talk, uh, of course, it's uh, closing in on the anniversary of 9-11. We'll talk with uh, a former airline pilot, author of The Big Bamboozle, and much more. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.